Knowledge is power. Ladies and gentlemen, hello. I hope you're well. I have Julie here with me today. Um, Julie, you want to go ahead and give me, let's start out with kind of a, a bio. So kind of how you got to, to, to what it is that you do, and then maybe give us a, a lowdown on what it is that you do. Okay. Awesome. Well, first I'll just say thank you for having me here today, Jacob. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And hi to all the listeners. Um, I currently run my business, which is Peer Performance Solutions, and we help organizations and individuals to lift performance. And so um, through that, I use consulting, coaching, training, and even at times mediating skills that I've amassed through various mechanisms. I've, um, you know, I have a couple of degrees, a BA in communication and an MA in organizational leadership, but I also am a certified coach, a certified executive coach, and a certified emotional intelligence coach, as well as a qualified neutral in the state where I live, which is Minnesota, which is a trained and certified mediator. So those are the the skills that I use in working with um, organizations, teams, uh, boards, and um, I really find it, or even individuals, I really find it very helpful and um, wonderful work because um, the impact with people is amazing to watch. So prior to starting my business back in 2014 full-time, I worked in a number of consulting and research firms previously uh, where I was leading teams delivering services to um, global and smaller clients. And then um, my last full-time gig right before I started my business was leading a team at the University of Minnesota Foundation where Uh, The team that I led was supporting from the operational side, the major gift effort around the university. So helping all the frontline fundraisers uh, with research lists, predictive modeling, things like that. So um, I've kind of come through a a varied career coming to where I am. The last two gigs that I had full-time, I was hired specifically to turn teams around a little bit, um, improve the interface with the group. Uh, improve some team dynamics, some cultural elements. And uh, I was successful in those um, thanks to the good work that the people around me did. I just set the stage, if you will, and then let them shine. But uh, I found that I really like doing that. So when I work with clients, I work with clients who are struggling in some way, um, whether it's you know an, an interface issue, a client service issue, or even how to motivate a team, how to keep them performing well. So I enjoy that kind of fixer role, if you will. Right. Yeah. Geez. Yeah. You have a lot of great experience in that too. So what is the what does the actual boots on the ground typically look like for you when you're when you're actually face to face with these people with these organizations? What are the conversations that come up? Um, what are the the common ailments that that you seem to see throughout? Well, sometimes I'm just doing helping with planning. So facilitating planning sessions or retreats, uh, figuring out where they want to head, strategic planning, if you will. So that's kind of broad and big and fun because you get to be creative and innovative and all those things. Um, other times it's helping to repair. So if uh, I've been called in where a team isn't gelling well, if you will, to help them address their team dynamics. I've been called in to help performance, whether a management team or managers in working with their team members that report to them. Uh, What I like to say, because I hear it all the time, is that accountability conversations are the most difficult part of leadership, right? I mean, those times when you're asking somebody to do something differently than they are. Those are tough times. And so I get called in a lot for that kind of a thing. Um, Sometimes I'm working directly with the person who needs to kind of adjust. Sometimes I'm working with the manager to help them work with that person differently. So, you know, helping them to build those skills. So it can be both of those. So are are people typically 
you know, if, if they're in these situations where they're calling you in or asking for your guidance and assistance, are they pretty, um, are they reluctant to listen to what you have to say at, at first? Or is there, is there common difficulties? Because I, I imagine, I mean, you, you mentioned emotional intelligence. Um, and I think a, a lot of this area and a lot of kind of like being aware of our own actions and how our own over overreactions or our own emotions get the best of us. Sometimes that's kind of difficult to look at within ourselves, you know? So I imagine you coming in saying, Hey, here's what we need to be doing. And here's how maybe you're not helping or, you know, you probably don't say it like that, but, um, so, so yeah. So, so what, what comes up in that, in that area? So sometimes I am called in to, work directly with the person who is having some kind of performance issue. And um, I usually am coming in as a coach in that case. So uh, to differentiate and kind of explain how I think of these and often in the industry, they're thought of this way. Consulting is providing advice and coaching is really helping the person surface their own knowledge, their own plans, their own goals, their own action steps to reach those goals and that kind of thing. So I come in with a consulting mindset, even if I'm hired to repair something. So I'm asking a lot of questions. And yes, sometimes if I've been hired because, you know, executive says this leader needs to change the way they're working, this leader may not be super welcoming at first. But because I'm going in with a discovery mindset where I'm asking questions, I'm asking their perspective of the situation, I'm asking them how can they work differently within the situation to address whatever the executive is saying to them? Because it's a it's a um, clear, you know, the executive saying to both of us what needs to be worked on. So we're all on the same page, if that makes sense. Though the, the person who has to do the work might not agree, um, I ask them things like, what's going to happen if you don't make this change? Mm-hmm. How is that going to go for you? So I'm, I'm going in with a lot of questions and trying to help them see where it's in their own best interest to make a shift, to think about things differently, whatever the case may be. And more often than not, I've had maybe a couple where it's kind of stalled out, but more often than not, they do kind of see that light and and start making changes to the degree that they are able. And um, it does have positive impact. I have had a couple where uh, things just stalled out and and that's, you know, not great for anybody, right? But, you know, if somebody isn't performing where, say, an executive needs them to be, that can go a, a direction toward maybe they lose their job or something. So it, it can be hard in those circumstances. But um, most often, the people are wanting to keep their jobs. They are wanting to be successful. Right. And it's just helping them figure out how. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you kind of, I, I like to use the term ushering of epiphany. I feel like, so sometimes you probably present them with um, like, hey, so, so if you get them to say out loud, okay, if, if you do it this way and it happens like this, what do you think will happen or what's going to happen if you use this decision? So having them hear themselves say it or talk it out probably is, is very helpful to what you do. I love your phrase, ushering in epiphany. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, to be honest, I think I stole it from somebody else that I heard on a podcast, but it definitely sparked my interest. And I was like, oh, that's that's what I like to do too in some sort of way. So um, so the word the word leadership to you, what, what does leadership mean? So to me, leadership doesn't isn't specific to a role. So I think of leadership and I sometimes call it personal leadership can be exhibited anywhere and actually probably should be exhibited anywhere. I think that we all exhibit leadership to some degree in our day-to-day roles at home, in the community, at work. When we put somebody into a leadership role, it heightens that to a a new degree because you have people um, reporting directly to you. Their their way of working is going to in some way be inspired by you and impacted by you. So there's a heightened level if you're put into a direct reporting kind of role. But I think we all have the opportunity to show leadership. And I think leadership is really just, for me, it's, it needs to have an inspirational, motivational element, but it also has to be for good. So um, I, I like to think of positive impact, not harming. So to me, those are all elements that are important in leadership. Right, right. So, so, I would say 
we all have some sort of leadership capability within us. You know, it's kind of about finding your own greatness or your own leadership, whatever roles in in your life that you're a leader. So I've been, um, I I had a couple kind of leadership roles even back in high school. I was like sophomore class president, that sort of thing. And then after um, I was manager and assistant manager at some, some retail stores, that sort of thing. And, uh, I always, and now that I, I really enjoy philosophy and just kind of like studying all of this whole, this whole area and how people think differently. And I kind of observe, um, and ask myself, how do I think differently, um, as a leader? Like how does me being in these roles as a manager or, um, you know, a supervisor, whatever it is, how do I just in order to do my job well, in in my opinion, how do I think differently than the people who are, you know, working underneath me or or the, the employees, um, and, and it's very interesting because when you step into that role, you kind of do see, um, it does, you know, I, I, my skills are accented. My skills are kind of brought to, to the front when I step into that role of, okay, I understand that I see these things differently than other people do because I'm not so, they're doing this task and they need to be doing that task. Um, so it's, so it, it, it's very, it's it just, it's interesting to me to see where we can really snap into. So do you find, um, do you find that people, if you can kind of push them towards it or usher them in, in towards it rather, um, do you find people who didn't think they were leaders before, but you can kind of spark it within them? Do you, do you ever have an experience of that? Absolutely. I've had people reluctant to step into a leadership role that I was asking them to step into. And um, I think that many leaders, even those that have been leading for a long, long time, can lack confidence. I think we as individuals, as humans can often lack confidence, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's a human trait that can rear up lots of times and places. And I think that confidence thing is hard to, to um, tackle because it requires some internal work and it requires a supportive environment as well. Um, so I've had people, um, I'm thinking of one like that I'll kind of talk about um, without naming names, of course, very reluctant to step into a leadership role, but was, but I saw already how she was leading without being in a leadership role. And the organization I was leading, a, a multifaceted team, um, broad team with different functions under it, um, really needed leaders over each of those functions. And I was asking her to step in to lead one of those functions. And um, We had some very um, honest and forthright conversations. She was honest with me about how she was feeling. I was honest with her about what I was seeing in her. And ultimately she did opt to step into that and she's been fabulous. Um, She's been promoted since I know, even though I'm no longer, you know, in where she has has her um, work being done, but I know she's being successful and I'm so gratified that I could help be that support that helped move her into that. Um, you're, I wanted to circle back to something else you said too, that, that idea of we're stepping into a leadership role, we might think differently than other people and we often do. Um, I think that some people lifted into leadership have that ability to think, think broadly, strategically, um, visionary, Uh, while also managing the work that needs to get done, managing the people who are doing the work. I think some people are such good individual performers or contributors that they get lifted into leadership and they are given the support they need to develop these skills that some Mm -hmm. people innately have. And so some of the work I do is actually helping with some of that kind of thing, where an individual contributor has been lifted and they weren't given the tools initially and some issues are coming up and now I'm called in to help with that. Right, right. Yeah. So, so they have some sort of quality, some sort of traits, but um, maybe not the, the strategies to implement right. them, you know, and you right. help with the strategies. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, leadership is just something that, you know, in today's day and age, I know our, our news media makes us so crazy about everything, but um, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, I imagine if you, if we were younger people, you know, like I think about like teenagers, if they're looking up, who's the leaders, who do I listen to? You know, we have influencers on social media and all these sorts of things. Um, 
but you know, a lot of the people in shirts and ties at podiums the last, you know, however many years, they seem less and less like leaders, you know, is is in, um, you know, you, you probably, you may, you may, I, I'm not sure, uh, you may cringe even more than I, because uh, you're a mediator when, when you listen to the way that a lot of our leaders speak to one another um, in the, the non, we don't solve any of our conflicts. We just exacerbate more, it seems. Um, so, so what, what do you think about, do you think about kind of um, what the younger, younger generation may be seeing in our, our um, leaders that, that we have now? And then, and then do you think of a way that maybe we could shift it or make it better or maybe even a way that our current leaders could start to maybe act, act more like leaders? Of course, this is a broad, you know, not, not every single politician or whatever is evil, but. <laughs> but there can be. And, you know, I hate to label anybody evil no matter, but. I think that you are correct that we have some people in highly visible leadership roles, whether that's politics, some of our very large multinational organizations, um, you know, even in churches or what have you, there can be leaders who are exhibiting what I would call or what I would say are not leadership traits. So I mentioned earlier that I think it's very important for leadership to exhibit a positive impact and not do harm. I think we can all think of times when we've seen leaders do harm, whether that's with the rhetoric they use, the way they're talking, whether that's with um, some of the actions that they're taking, those, some of those things can be harmful and I don't think of them as leadership-like. Um, additionally, I think that we have so that's a leadership umbrella and then you mentioned kind of the mediator thing i think of that as a relationship umbrella i think we have some crises in both arenas to mm -hmm. be honest i think that the way we treat one another uh, it can happen on social media it can happen on uh, within our news media um, it can happen within the leaders but there are um, bad ways of interacting there are bad ways of um, trying to solve conflict, which is sometimes shown as trying to power my way over your way. And that's not really a conflict resolution the way I describe it. So there are a lot of opportunities for us to shift them some things in terms of how our youth and young adults and that kind of thing see those of us who are older, more seasoned, shall we say, um, I'm sure they're appalled at times. But I also think they've been trained at times by some of those very people that are doing the practices that aren't helpful. And so there can be both sides of that, right? And I don't, I think that we who are more seasoned, we who are in leadership roles have to take responsibility for what we are putting out into the world and how our modeling, so we, all, we often talk about modeling, our best opportunity as a leader is to model that which we want to see. So if we're modeling certain things that we wouldn't want others to exhibit, we need to be doing some self-reflection and shifting some things that we're doing. Because um, if, if the thing that just came out of your mouth, you would be appalled if somebody said to you, that's probably a mismatch and you might want to be thinking about that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you think that when I think of leadership, I think of a growth mindset. Do you think um, all, all leaders have, have a growth mindset of some sort? So I think often if you're put into a leadership role in an organization, growth is part of it. Um, I think that it's possible to show leadership, which is influence and positive impact without necessarily having growth. Um, you know, you can lead in your family, you can lead in your church without necessarily trying to grow those, right? So I think that we can still show leadership without necessarily being in a space of needing to grow. But if we're in an organization, growth is often a part of it, especially a profit organization. Um, I think, you know, one of my personal leadership philosophies is that uh, the organizations that focus only on profit and only on how much money we make for whatever the stakeholders are that realize the money, you know, whether that's shareholders or, you know, private owners or whatever it may be, if that's the only thing we're thinking of, I think we're missing out on our impact on other stakeholder groups. We're missing out on, well, how are we impacting our employees? How are we impacting our customers or people we serve? So I think 
thinking broadly about the stakeholders that we impact and making sure that we're not benefiting one group at the detriment of others, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Certainly. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so sticking on growth, um, mentioning in, in, in your book and a little bit of your bio, it sounds like you've had your own growth. You've had your own um, trials and tribulations, just like all of us in this human experience, <laughs> you know, um, and, and it led you to your book, um, The Five, five, five Senses for Success. Um, so tell me a little bit about, about your growth and then how it led to your book and then tell us about your book. Sure. So it's funny because I started the writing of the book back in 2015. And I, when I started writing, I thought that the book's ideas had started coming to me in my early career as an adult. But as I got further into the writing process, and because I was sharing some personal stories in the book as well, and it was causing me to do a lot more self-reflection, I realized that it really started back in childhood. So I grew up in a somewhat dysfunctional home. Um, it wasn't as dysfunctional as some homes that exist, but it was definitely dysfunctional. And um, there wasn't a lot of good relationship or good leadership happening in that home. So I wasn't learning those skills as some people who happen to be gifted with a home where the people modeling behavior are modeling good behavior. Um, I wasn't getting that. So I wasn't learning those skills early on. So I had what I call a late launch in life. So I quit high school before I graduated. I went back and graduated. I didn't go to college right away. I just started doing kind of some admin type work and then later realized, okay, I need to, you know, think about how am I going to do more in my career, um, be more successful, make more money. Cause honestly, the living paycheck to paycheck was a little tough. And so I was decided to go back to college, graduated with my BA when I was 31. So I was older than typical. And then um, during that time up till then, I was having a lot of difficulties with relationships as well. So I was um, harming myself in some ways by the situations I would get into, um, being in harmful situations in some situations, in some cases. And it, you know, every one of those that happened taught me something that I took with me. So I started, I think of that journey as kind of collecting learnings along mm -hmm. the way that later I realized came into this book. Um, so the five senses um, is a twist or an elevation of our, our typical five senses. So most of us realize the senses of see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. And I realize that some people don't realize some senses. I understand also that they have heightened other senses usually when that case, when that happens. But generally speaking, we have the five senses. And what I did is I shifted those into what I see as deeper and more meaningful senses of observe, listen, feel, engage, and appreciate. Mm. And why I say they're deeper and more meaningful, I think that when we experience the world with our five senses, sometimes it's kind of passive. We may hear sounds, but we aren't attending to them. Sometimes we're in conversation and we aren't attending to it. Um, we may see something, especially peripherally, where we aren't, you know, noticing. Um, we could be in a conversation and not notice the nonverbals of the other person. We could be in those situations and not paying attention to our own self, what we're thinking, and um, kind of seeing, observing ourselves, listening to ourselves. Um, and so when I think of the journey that led to this book, I think the observing started way back in my youth where I was observing the parents and the family to try and avoid trouble, right? I was a, a keen observer of what was happening in the house. Um, I later learned to observe and listen more in skills with, um, within my career. So early in my career, I was asked to be a focus group moderator, which is highly listening oriented. And I learned that as much as it terrified me because I wasn't somebody to want to get up in front of a group. And, you know, so that was another kind of lesson along the journey as I was going through. And then when I went for my master's degree, a little bit later, I started moving into the leadership thinking. And, um, and I, uh, oh, and in my 20s, so the feel, which is the new sense for touch, um, I, I was going through therapy because I had a lot of stuff to 
on package from my youth. And I had times when I, the therapist would ask, how does that make you feel? And I would say, I don't even know because I don't know what I feel. I don't know what a feeling. I don't know. Cause I would shut that down before it was like, I was just meant to be quiet, not bothering anybody. And so I had shut all that down. So I had to really go through a time period where I had to get in touch with that stuff. And so all these little lessons, I feel like really helped me in the end to build a successful career in leadership in organizations. I think I used all those skills in the work I did with the teams I led with the people that I worked with as colleagues, and then my managers and other executives that might be above me. Um, and, and by building that success and feeling like these skills were paramount in how um, we get work done in how we show up with one another. Almost every goal that one needs to achieve or wants to achieve needs to be done with the collaboration of at least one other person. Almost every, there are a few where you don't, but most often you need to be able to work with others. And so these skills are really, really important. And as I gathered all those skills, I wanted to share them with others. So that's what the inspiration of the book was. Um, and just to kind of talk a little bit about the last two senses. So engage is the new one for taste. Taste is a multi-sensory sense, right? We can smell the food, we can maybe touch it. We feel the touch of it in our mouth. Um, so it's multi-sensory. So too is engaging, whether we're engaging with others or with ourselves. So another thing I talk about in the book is that these senses are used both with others and really should be used for ourselves too. Um, and then appreciate, which is often the hardest one to use for ourselves because we easily see our, our failures or mistakes mm -hmm. or our downfalls and we can have negative self-talk and all those things that happen. But if we really truly learn to appreciate ourselves, that helps us show up better in the world. And when we take that appreciation to others, I mean, sometimes we'll think the idea of appreciation for something, but we don't take it and bring it to somebody in some way, whether that's with words, with the act of kindness, with something. Um, and so I think of appreciating as making it active. I think of all of them as making them more active and engaged and and um, purposeful, intentional. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. The the difference between just the word itself and something that's just so passive and into something that's being that's more active. So, so instead of seeing, it's observing, right? Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I really I really like that. Um, I, I love how you laid that out. So um, I'm a I'm a, a meditator. I have been for the last few years. Um, in something uh, in, in the mental health world, I, I dealt with a lot of disassociation. Um, and something that really helps me is doing these meditations um, using my five senses. So you take, you know, all their own individual time, you take it slow, but you really concentrate on touch and you feel, you know, all the spots where your, your shirt is touching your skin and where your feet are touching the ground. Um, and and you, you do that for all of your senses. And for me, um, someone who struggles with disassociation from time to time, it really helped me kind of understand um, my senses that we just pass over. We just plow through them. You know, our, our minds are just running our running our thoughts and our our actions so often that we don't really slow down and get to what our senses are so i mean yeah i really love how you laid that out um i think a lot of people kind of even if they just take that and just contemplate their five senses a little bit more deeply what what is the experience of each of those five senses and then we can kind of get a little bit more in tune with um our emotions and in feeling, you know, our intuition, our gut feeling, that the stuff that we all kind of miss out on in our modern culture. I agree. Mm -hmm. I love your meditation too, focused on the senses. I meditate as well, maybe not every day like you do, but I do it pretty regularly. And I've never thought to just do a meditation like that. I'm definitely going to try that out because I think that's a wonderful way to, to meditate because we don't fully utilize our senses in the way that we could. They, they just kind of are, whatever senses we realize, we just kind of become used to them being there. We aren't conscious always about what feedback, what um, input am I receiving from the world from these senses? Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. I would recommend is she's a meditation teacher. I think she teaches, it's called the Ziva meditation or the Z technique. Her name's Emily Fletcher. 
Um, she, she has a book. It was, it was fairly short. It was pretty, um, uh, it, it was like not, not overly scientific. Like she has a couple good studies in there. Um, but it wasn't too o- over the edge where it's really dense or anything. It was very, very surface level. She, she seemed like a very sweet person. Um, I watched her on some interviews and read her book, Emily Fletcher, Z technique or, or something like that. Yeah. I know. Yeah. yeah, I definitely recommend it. Um, okay, so let's let's shoot on over to the world of um, damaged relationships or repairing our relationships. Um, so so let, let's expand. You know, so so let's talk coworker relationships. You know, family relationships, friendships, all of this. How do we how do we repair and how do we you know communicate more mm-hmm. more forthright and, and and better? Yeah. Well, I'm a big obviously because I wrote the book. I'm a big believer in using our senses well to do that. Um, but I'll, to, to start talking about this, I'll talk a little bit about what happens in a mediation because it's really powerful in my mind. Um, and I hear other mediators say the same thing. So when a mediator is called into a conflict and it can be, I've mediated conflicts between, um, family members, between community members, like say neighbors, I've mediated, um, situations that were in a CHIPS, child in need of protective services situation. I've mediated um, conflicts that were under the human rights umbrella where an individual and organization may not be agreeing about whether a human rights issue had been violated. So I've, I've mediated a wide gamut of types of situations. And um, one of the tactics that mediators facilitative mediators like myself do is after kind of talking about the process and how it will work, they allow each side some what we call uninterrupted time. And I really love that concept of uninterrupted time. So, you know, the parties will decide who will go first. I do not as a facilitative mediator, I'm not deciding, they are deciding. And um, one will be the one to tell their story using their own words, however they want to tell. And the other is invited to listen carefully and really hear what the perspective of the one who's speaking is. And then it flips. The other person will get their uninterrupted time and the other will listen. And what's beautiful about uninterrupted time is that I can see either in nonverbals or people sometimes actually say, I've never heard that before. I never knew you felt that way they are surprised by some of the things that they hear during that uninterrupted time. And by just setting this container around them that's different than the way they had been working together, you know, in whatever capacity, whether it was work, family, whatever, um, by doing that, they they often um, listen differently. And there's not the interruptive thing that happens often in conflict. So I'm sure all of us, I certainly have been in conflicts where you start kind of talking over each other. That's not full listening. And we're, instead of listening to what the other person's saying in a conflict, often we're thinking about what's next that that we're going to voice or how we're going to argue their point they're just making. And so with this uninterrupted time idea, it's the idea of really just sitting back, trying to put your ideas aside for a bit and just listen. It's just about listening. And it's really quite magical what can surface. And then what else we're looking for as mediators during that time and beyond in the discussion that goes back and forth following is where are the commonalities? So even when people are in conflict, there are usually some commonalities. So maybe there's a family conflict between two parents, but they're so, so They're both really, really dedicated to the growth and and nurturing of their children. Maybe they have different ideas about it, um, how to do it. But the commonality is they really want to nurture and love and help them, right? So it's finding those commonalities that a solution can be built on. So those are mediator practices, but any individual can take those ideas into any difficult conversation or relational situation. Um, When I go, when I, so sometimes I will do something called conflict coaching where I'm just working with one person who's in a conflict, but the other party hasn't decided to do a full mediation. But even by working with one person and asking them to show up with an idea of discovery 
instead of, you know, let's talk about this conflict, but really an idea of discovery and asking questions to fully understand the other person's perspective, it starts to change the way the relationship goes, even if just one side starts it. So anybody can take that into any difficult situation, those kinds of ideas, and there are more in the book, um, to, to try and shift the way relationships are going. And it's, it's really quite magical, but it often does shift things. Yeah, yeah, I bet it is. I mean, it's uh, anything that you can. I, I like the finding the the common ground, that commonality, because it shifts from. Um, sometimes we're unconsciously kind of trying to win, you know, or or our ego is really like run, running the ship to protect us from the painful emotions, and so it's really is is trying to win and prove itself right or whatever it may be. Um, but if we can shift out of that, notice we're having that, and shift into a we versus the problem, um, that 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 certainly helps. That's something that I have. Um, of course, you know, I, I, I have my shortcomings for sure. So it doesn't always happen, but I do try to, um, approach conflict or relationships with, with one another as it's us versus the problem. There's really never a time where I'm going to feel good about winning or one-upping on, on someone, you know, I'm not, unless I'm in like a slam dunk contest or something, it's, there's no <laughs> point in trying to slam dunk on it. Someone I'm having a relationship with. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, let's see. Performance optimization, um, operational and performance optimization. So what are some basic strategies for optimization in, um, in our, our relationships with one, with one another, um, and let's say family as well as, as coworkers, just optimizing and, and getting better just as a, maybe a general statement towards uh, our relationships? Okay. So when I think of performance optimization, I'm often thinking of organizations. So I'll talk about that first. And then I'll try to translate that into family and community kinds of ideas. So with performance optimization, most often I'm working with the leaders around accountability practices. So, and sometimes project management type practices. So some of the leaders are challenged with um, the strategy development the putting a plan in place to address or reach that the strategy and um, and then the constant monitoring of progress and the um, heightening or lifting up of risky situations where progress isn't being made to the degree it should and then helping them address Often that can be a performance issue, somebody not pulling their weight, that kind of thing, or maybe even a team not pulling their weight, and then how to address that. So it's kind of this trickle-down effect. So it depends on the unique situation where I might spend my time. I will say that I spend a fair amount of time in the how to have those accountability conversations. So um, when I've met, so I've been a leader and I've had to have accountability conversations with um, individuals who weren't pulling their weight fully. And when I do that, and this is what I encourage the people I coach as well to do, is go in with that. You heard me say the word discovery a while ago, go in that, with that sense of discovery. So I have a perception, an observation that somebody isn't pulling their weight for some reason. What if I'm wrong? What if I don't understand the full situation? So first of all, check my understanding of the situation, right? So going in, asking, so here I've observed, let's say it's missed deadlines. I've observed a few missed deadlines lately. Can you tell me what's going on? Instead of, you can't miss these deadlines, you know, there's different ways to approach it. And so um, going in with the idea of um, what can I do to help them understand the situation from the other person's perspective. So maybe there's a barrier that's causing them to miss deadlines that exist somewhere else in the organization. And that's the thing that needs to be addressed. So you really wanna take the time to understand what the situation is before you um, make the assumption that it is that place you think it is. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, continue. So that's kind of the performance aspect. When it's, so often, so often leaders can be visionary or strategic, but not good at the day-to-day, -day, how do we get there, right? So they might have good strategies, vision. They might even have some good goals outlined for, say, divisions or departments. 
But then when it comes to the day-to-day -day work that has to trickle up into those to make them successful, they aren't sure how to make that happen. And they, some of the project management type of um, practices I was mentioning are what are important in, that, in those cases. So taking the time to document who is responsible for what, timelines, deadlines, um, status meetings to make sure progress is being made, Again, lifting where there are risk factors, something's lagging and other things depend on it. So I help them learn some of those practices when needed as well. Now, when you take that into the family or into the community, I think you have opportunity to do some of that, but it's, you know, like if I were to sit down and say, let's put this project plan together with my husband on a certain thing, he may not be super open to that. <laughs> so it's maybe you do it in a little different way. You have a conversation about how you're going to move forward on something and you repeat it and is this what we're agreeing to and getting that more verbal type of thing and then maybe planning a check-in can we check in on this in a week or a month or whatever it makes sense and see how we're doing and so you can still use some of those ideas of project management even though it's a family situation um, sometimes, so my husband and I are actually raising our first granddaughter and um, she has a neurological disorder. And so sometimes we actually do document some things out for her to help her visually see some things. Mm. But it's not like you can't do that. Sometimes there is a way to do that that's appropriate. Um, so you can use those there. And then working in organizations, the same kinds of things, like a, let's say you're volunteering for your church or a, a nonprofit somewhere. You can still some, use some of those organizational practices I mentioned, even in those cases. So you, if you're volunteering and you're, let's say you're on a board or you're working to help um, deliver services for a nonprofit, you can say, can we like get this down on paper? Can we see what this looks like when we document it? You can ask these questions and often people will say, yeah, that's a great idea. So you can try to embed some of those. It's kind of showing that leadership idea without having a leadership role always and, and trying to get them to employ some of them. Right, right. Do you, do you find yourself having a lot of success um, just narrowing down goals, like just kind of deciphering going into these places or with these people and, and maybe helping them designate, hey, like where's, where's the front of your ship directed? Because maybe that's the problem. Maybe we're just going wherever we want here. Is that something that comes up often? One of the things that happens pretty frequently is there will be a strategy and plan and it seems good, but then the whim of a leader will suddenly redirect action another way. <laughs> so whether that's an executive director, a VP, uh, you know, an owner, uh, an entrepreneur, it could be any scenario, they could say, oh, we need to do this. Well, when they say that, it's a new thing that wasn't part of the strategy. Mm -hmm. So what it does is it takes effort away from that strategy. So those whims need to be considered before they're you know, moved on, if you will. So sometimes it's working with leaders to understand where they're impacting their own plan, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. You can't just suddenly pivot whenever you have a gut feeling, I think. Yeah. You have to um, implement strategies and, and plans. So do you see that... Um, I mean, we kind of like are, uh, again, going more broadly, are, how does, how do our leadership skills, because, because I think about a lot of the times when we're shooting for our goals, um, especially in business, a lot of times it's going to be profit, right? You know, of course, that's what shareholders, stockholders, that's what they want. Um, that's what capitalism does. It's what we're doing here. We're, we're making money, of course. Um, do you do you find you have to kind of like remind them that yes, profit is a goal, but not the only goal? Do do you do you find um, a way of because uh, there's there's got to be a balance of keeping the human aspect in in businesses, you know, in in the uh, f finding more reasons why a company is doing what it's doing. Um, maybe maybe their purpose again towards their goals. They're shooting towards these these um, you know we're shooting a basketball toward towards the net. What what it, what is the net? What's the hoop? Um, but, but yeah, yeah. So, so, so do, do you find that uh, maybe we get a little bit jaded or a little bit lost in between? Is this for profit or what's our goal? Yeah, I think, I mean, if you're talking about a, a corporate organization, a for-profit organization, you're almost always talking about trying to maximize profit, of course. That is one of the goals. But it, I would hope that it's also about 
providing a meaningful product or service that helps people in some way. Um, most are, but you know, there might be some that aren't. Um, and, and if I'm working with a leader where the, the, the focus is so much on the profit that it is negatively impacting team members, whether they're colleagues or the people that report to them. Um, I, again, approach it with that coaching mindset of, and often I'm called in because there's an issue because 360 degree um, feedback things happen and they're getting lots of negative feedback and trying to, and then I might do interviews to try and figure out why that's happening. And then this surfaces as an issue. And so I try to ask the question. So I understand, and I always recognize that there is a ton of pressure on leaders. So leaders have, especially at the executive level, have a very high pressure job. It, you know, they have those different stakeholder groups all clamoring for their needs to be met, right? Whether it's the shareholders, whether it's the employees, the customers, and what they need to do is figure out how to balance that. And so when I start talking to this leader, this fictional leader that I need to help, you know, or, and I have helped some of them, um, is that how, how can we, we rebalance this in a way that meets more people's needs, more stakeholders' needs? And I really, so often they can come up with ideas. So I'm trying to ask enough insightful questions based on what I hear from them that they can find their own solution. And if they, even after I'm asking all sorts of different questions, they aren't finding it, then I'll ask, can we brainstorm together? Is that okay? Mm. Because coaching is their, their session. It's their, you know, they're, they're driving it, but I'm the guide, if you will. And, um, and when we brainstorm together, even if I start with, I've seen people do this or that, just by virtue of brainstorming, they start bringing up ideas and often one of their ideas or maybe one I brought up will work for them and they'll start trying to shift it. Now there's typically when anybody tries to change behavior, there's typically a, a, an attempt and a backslide and an attempt and a backslide. So there's time that goes into the resolving of it, right? But it's working through that over time and hopefully I'm building enough trust with that person and that's something I'm aiming definitely to do that they're bringing the challenges to me that they're experiencing so that we can talk about them, um, problem solve, figure out strategies to do it differently next time, whatever it may be. Um, and with that trust thing in mind, I think it's really important whenever we're working with people in organizations, in our families, in our communities, we can get so much more done if we're in a trust state with people. And the best way to be in a trust state is to co-create or co-develop something together. So um, there are institutions that have done studies where they do functional MRIs on brains of people who are in trusting states and they see that the brains actually end up mirroring each other. Mm -hmm. So it literally changes the way your brain is showing up. So when we, so some of the elements that go into that trust state are definitely fulfilling out what we say we're going to do, building safe spaces to talk about whatever is needed, not blaming, not putting people down for their ideas or thoughts or actions, and um, trying to get to that point where um, ideas can be shared, we can co-create together, and it's a beautiful thing how... Um, how that shifts things. And so I'm getting, I'm trying to get that leader that we're talking about to think about those elements. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah that's so interesting. That's it's really cool thinking about how our, our brains mirror each other when we're, when we're in a trusting state. It's like, you know, the opposite of that fear response, you know, the, the, the state that our news seems to put us in at all times nowadays, it's the opposite of that, yeah. Uh, I, I was actually listening to, um, uh, he's a, a professor from up in Canada, I think, John Verveke, um, he has this this whole series on uh, the meaning crisis. It's fascinating. Um, but he was talking this morning uh, about the the importance of like the dialogos, the logos, um, the which is just like uh, the dialect, our conversations with one another, and that's kind of how um, 
you know, back in the day, how our, our democracy and, and all the things that we do and, and experience today, how it's built, you know, we, we have these long conversations with each other and ideas and being in those trusting states are really what make, makes humans so cool. You know, we can, we can collaborate and create things together by um, having our guard down, being trusting. Um, when you can trust that the other person is going to, you know, wa- uh, watch and observe their emotions and, and you know, uh, try their best to, to help you solve the problem without um, emotions or irrationality stepping in, you know. So, so yeah, we can really, w- w- when we're in that trusting state, it is really the optimal like if, if you have a business, if you have a company, if you have something that you're trying to get done, I mean, it's like the ultimate performance hack. Let's let's learn how to, you know, c- control our states of mind and, and be in a trusting state so we can accept each other's ideas and, and not put each other down and, and, you know, steer the ship in, in, in one one solid direction. So um, what would you say? Through, through your journey, I mean, you, you've, you've gone through so much, you know, just with, with writing the book, um, um, all, all of your schooling, all of your mediating, all of your coaching. What, like, if, if you kind of had to look back at all of your journey, glancing back over your shoulder, what, what do you feel that you've really learned about not just people, but maybe even about yourself in, in all of this? Wow, I have learned so much about myself. Um, so I can say that the practices I put into the book we're learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Learned by me making a lot of failures along the way and um, having some negative outcomes as a result and uh, learning how to shift the way I showed up. Um, I did take advantage. I'm so I don't know the Strengths Finder paradigm, Gallup Strengths Finder. I am definitely a learner in that. And so I, I soak in information all the time, it's just who I am. And having done that through different avenues, whether formal education or not, um, that has helped me a great deal. And so I would say that, you know, for me and for others, look around, find the things that are different than what you know exactly now, and try to understand how they might fit and how those practices could be beneficial to you. I had to do that a lot in order to come to where I am today. I had to realize that what I knew at any given point in my life, it could be, you know, basically every year of my life. Okay, what I know now is not everything I need to know. I still have to keep trying. So I think of um, Hume as I think that we as humans have this wonderful opportunity to keep expanding our knowledge and expanding who we are and how we show up throughout our whole life. And um, I think it's unfortunate when people might do that early on and then kind of stop and live out the rest of their days without that continued bringing in new ideas. So I I guess I would bring that up. And I would also bring up um, the way I finished my book, no matter where anybody has been, and I believe this for myself too, because like I said, I've made a lot of mistakes, no matter what we have done, there is always hope for a better and improved future state. And we just have to figure out how to get there and how to bring ourselves there and others with us. Right. So I always think of that hope as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I love you bringing in the word hope with that. That's, that's so great. Uh, Yeah. And we really are, you know, uh, having a constant growth mindset, you know, every year becoming the new version of the butterfly. And last year was the, was the caterpillar, you know, we're, we're such, we're such fluid creatures. Everything is so fluid. We're always, um, as much as we want to kind of take our, take our report card down is like, here's what I've accomplished and here's what I've done. Here's what I haven't done or whatever, you know, if, if, if sometimes we'll internalize our, our shortcomings by just take, okay, here's, here's where I'm at right now. Um, but remembering that I could be more tomorrow than I am today. I can be more today than I, than I was yesterday. You know, always, always having that, that constant state of growth is is really important that it kind of kind of seems like that's that's a little bit of uh, maybe what you've learned too is um just just to always be growing and always be improving and and looking for ways to improve and those mistakes that we make because we all make them we are human humans are fallible those mistakes we make are learnings they aren't catastrophes in most cases i suppose there are some where it may feel like a catastrophe um i have volunteered with individuals who were in prison or in jail. And um, 
you know, there might be times when that feels like a catastrophe that they ended up there. But I can also tell you that in working with those individuals, and I worked with teen girls and then men in jail, um, there is that sense of hope. And there is that sense of things could get better. And um, the type of work I was doing with them was helping them learn some of the conflict resolution type skills. And so they were seeking to learn, right? So no matter what your mistake, remember, you know, if you're blessed with the ability to walk, um, when we first started to walk, we couldn't do it, right? We fell on our butts or our knees or whatever all the time for a long time as we were trying to figure it out. So think of all those mistakes as the times you fell in learning to walk, if that's what your experience has been. And it's the same if you've learned to play the piano or learned a sport or whatever it may be. You had to fail, make mistakes, practice, practice, practice. And so I talk about practicing a lot too, or experimenting. We have to try in order to move forward. And we're gonna make mistakes in the trying because we don't know everything right away, right? So I made a lot of mistakes <laughs> and I've continued to try and I am still continuing to try. And I would encourage others to find what they are passionate about and experiment in the growth toward that and keep going. Yeah, keep going. That's so perfect. That's what I was going to say was just keep going. That That's always the most important thing. I learned to ride a, um, a unicycle when I was younger. And that was the, something that clicked in my head was whenever you feel like you're about to fall, just keep pedaling. And it was, it's this dorky thing that somehow it's just, I haven't ridden a unicycle in years and years, but uh, it is something that helps. Just, just keep going, just keep trying. You know, it's never a, like I said, we want to take out that report card and, and judge ourselves, and here's what I'm getting. It's no, no, you failed. You did something incorrectly, or you, maybe you went on the wrong path for a little while. No, you're not done. Keep going. You're good. Adjust, I pivot. Um, cool. Hey, so I just want to make sure, can we get, can we send the audience to your website? Where can they get your book? Let's give them all, all the info. Where can we find more, more about you? Sure. So I have two websites. One is peer, P-E-E-R, performancesolutions.com. And the other is my name, Julie, J-U-L-I, no E, Geske, G-E-S-K-E, peer, P-E-E-R.com, no hyphen in there. And um, the book is available via either of those, Amazon, wherever you'd like to go, Barnes & Noble, whatever site you would like to go. Awesome. Wonderful. Yeah, it's on Kindle as well, which is always nice. Um, so let's end with one more question. Uh, I, was, I was thinking of one I think that you would have a good answer to. How about um, if, you, if you were to, you know, looking in the camera, imagine you're speaking to the, the leader within every listener. Like this is, you're speaking to the leader within all of us. We all have something that's a leader. What's, what's a message that comes to mind? What's something that we, we could all hear or maybe would help us all kind of lean towards our, our leadership version of ourselves? What do we need to hear? So what immediately came to mind is that sometimes, and I can say I've been here, sometimes we think we can't change something. Sometimes we think the situation we're in is just too bad, too difficult, whether it's a toxic work environment, a toxic home life, a toxic whatever. We think it is impossible for us to have impact on it. But if we look inside of ourselves and figure out what little changes we can make. If we show up to a relationship differently, if we ask questions, if we share our ideas, because I bet in those circumstances, there are a lot of ideas floating in somebody's head. I've had that happen. Um, if we are willing to experiment with those ideas of the questions, the sharing, the um, thinking what I can do, we actually can have impact. We actually can help things shift, even when we think it's hopeless, even when we think it's too much, um, too difficult, too overwhelming. Um, so try to find that little place inside of you. And I believe that we are all given, you know, a strength, a light, I call it. I think we all have a light inside of us and find that light inside of yourself. And that light is meant to shine positive energy on others, right? And yourself. And so if you can find that internal light and let it 
give you courage to try and experiment and see what shifts, I think you'd be surprised at what, what influence and impact you can have in the end. Mm. Wow, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. That was a great answer, Julie. Um, I'm definitely going to clip that out. But uh, okay, well, hey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the work that you do. Thanks for um, um, writing your book. So uh, again, I really appreciate your time. And, and uh, I had a great conversation today, Julie. Thanks so much for having me on, Jacob. It was so great. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll, I'll be in touch. We'll, we'll post the episode probably in a, in a few weeks here. But uh, if, if we need to talk, we'll be in touch via email, okay? All right. Sounds great. Thank you. All right. Take care, listeners. Love yourself. Drink some water, stretch, and uh, check out Julie's book. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. It's the Junkyard Love Podcast. Power.